All right, sit back, relax. It's time for another Laneway Talks. I'd like to um, introduce Jeff Duff. How are you, Jeff? Hey, man, I'm good. I've just come back from jogging around the block and doing a few overs on my, my cricket pitch out the front. Ah, lovely, absolutely lovely. Well, we wanted to talk to you a little bit today about the career of Jeff Duff um, and where you started and, and where you're at now. I'd like to kind of start with uh, where did you grow up? Can you give us some? Well, I'm a Melbourne boy. Where you, you guys are located. I live in Sydney now, but I was, um, I was born in Melbourne and I, um, I had great education, great schools. I, have, I fondly remember my, my um, first uh, primary school. It was called Canterbury State School. Um, and obviously it was in Canterbury where, where we lived. I lived with my family in Canterbury. Beautiful, beautiful. Very affluent suburb, very affluent. It is, it is now. It was probably a little, a little more working class back when, when I grew up there, but um, we loved it. We were, you know, it was like it was like the Partridge family. We, you know, everybody played music and, and we're all young and enthusiastic. Um, uh, a few of us played sport. I'd always played sport. Anyway, that was my primary school. Then I went to um, Box Hill Technical School um, after that one. And um, I guess my claim to fame in both of those schools is that I was captain of the cricket team and the football team. Oh, very athletic. Uh, <laughs> well, I had, when I was younger, I don't know if this could be a little involved, when I was younger, I, I, I inherited my mum's uh, lung disease. So my breathing was... Um, Never ever, you know, really, really good. So the um, the doctors told my mother to let Jeffrey run around and go crazy playing sports. So I took every sport I played: cricket, tennis, basketball, hockey, soccer, everything. Well, tell everything. me, well, tell me a little bit. Therefore, so if you're doing all of that, um, gone to Swinburne. Um, I went to Swinburne after yeah. Box Hill Tech, yeah, as an, art, as, a, as an art student. As an art student. Now, with even with Box Hill Tech and then to Swinburne, was it were they very musical schools? So therefore, um, you know, did yeah. it foster a, a musical career? Yes, it did. Actually, I started learning drums. I, I had a passion for playing drums and percussion uh, when I was. Oh, you know, seven, eight, nine, and then um, my grandmother lent me some money to buy um, a snare drum, which progressed to a full kit, second-hand kit, and then uh, um, I joined a little trio when I was about ten or eleven or something like that at Canterbury State School. Yeah, I remember. I remember. I used to get on my bicycle to go to practice with my whatever. Parts of my drum kit I could fit on the on the on the rack at the back of the bike, <laughs> and uh, we practiced. And then, yeah, yeah, we played at uh, you know school celebration events at Canterbury State. And I went to Box Hill Tech, and I was in a band there called um, we were called Y W H Y, and um, we played you know hits at the time, pop um, and that was um, a little three piece with yeah. me playing drums. Are we talking like yeah. pop music or were you a bit yeah. like Jimmy Page and doing a rhythm and blues? Uh, well, a little bit of everything. And, and I played drums. And I started playing, you know, as I, I mentioned, I, I started playing drums. But then I, 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 um, I was singing as well because mum used to play piano. We had a beautiful piano in Canterbury and um, uh, I, I was going to singing lessons. So I must have been about 12, 13, 14, and I wanted to sing. So... I was playing drums and singing. Then in the end, uh, uh, when I reached Swinburne, um, I just wanted to be a rock star out the front and sing because I was really into clothes by then. I was really into designing my own clothes at, at Swinburne and wearing my own outfits. So I wanted to display them. The only way I could display them was by being out the front. Now, well, well uh, tell me, Jeff, um, you're known as a very flamboyant um, a visual artist, and therefore, if we take it back there to Swinburne, um, uh, were you as flamboyant back then before, let's say, before Cush? Oh, yeah. 
yes, at, at, at uh, Swinburne, which was Swinburne Art College at that time, you know, early 70s, um, was um, a breeding ground for a lot of rock bands. Uh, you know, all the guys from Metal Lake, they all um, Mick Fettis and uh, Brendan, the guitarist, and, yeah. and Terry, Terry, the bass player, and 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 also Jack Cleaners, the drum. Actually, the entire uh, um, band from uh, Metal Lake, they're my um, Swinburne Art College um, rivals in, yeah. in regard to music. We were all trying to outdo one another musically. I was in a band then called... Um, um, well, actually, before then, I was, in, I was in a band with David Briggs and George McCarroll from Little River Band. We, um, coming out of um, Box Hill Tech, I, um, I formed a little band um, in Melbourne, and I, I just ended up with David Briggs and George McCardle and drama from real life, I think it was. Oh, yeah. Anyway, they were all superstar musicians, and I was the... You know, the um, the dumb singer, and um, we do covers. We do covers of uh, whatever was happening at the time. I think we did the Who. And well, tell me, tell me, Jeffrey. Back then, what I now, you know, I'm only a few years younger than you, not much. Um, and uh, we used to. I was from La Trobe University, and we used to go to Swinburne every Friday to go in the Union Hall and watch bands play, which was free of charge because the student union would put it on. So you would have anybody from um, the Bushwhackers to um, whoever, anybody would be playing there. Um, And it was so musical that it doesn't surprise me what you're saying that, you know, you had these quite famous Australian artists who were there at the same time and... Um, you know, we had this rich creative talent coming out of there. So, well, going from there, how did it move to, I presume, Kush being your, um, you decided you'd love music, obviously, by that stage. So let's move over to Kush. How did that all occur? Well, I, look, I was in so many different bands and I, 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 I kept, I was offered all these. As I progressed through all the bands, I, I had so many bands. After Box uh, Hill, I ended up doing um, finding these musicians that were into Blood, Sweat and Tears in Chicago, mainly Blood, Sweat and Tears. And but it was only one. <laughs> there was only one trumpet. But but you know we thought it we sounded like Blood, Sweat and Tears. And it was a great rhythm section. But we were all young, you know, all young, 15, 16, 17. And then. Um, you know, after uh, the guys from Little River, what happened with Little River Band was um, I was um, I was uh, after Kush. Oh, gee, there was a big jump. That's right. I was I was singing in these twenty-piece uh, big bands, ring right. bands, in, and um, out of that, there were all these musicians that wanted to um, form uh, a blood, sweat, and tears style band in Melbourne. Yeah. Um, and um, they auditioned singers, loads of singers, but um, I ended up getting the gig because I, I, I think they looked, you know, more groovy than the others. I don't know whether I sang any better, but I, I definitely looked very groovy because I was. Well, well don't don't fla- really- don't flatter yourself. You know, you know, you're a good singer. So let's just continue on there. Well, no, no, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. I'm a good singer at all. I have, um, I, you know, I, I have. Um, Doubts about my capabilities as a singer, you know, especially when I hear some of the, you know the amazing singers around the world. But anyway, I, you know, I persisted with my singing, and you know, like, like early on, mum would mum would play piano, and uh, and I'd sing all the, you know, the standards of the day, you know, like somewhere over the rainbow show tunes. So that's how Kush and, started from coming out of these big bands that you were playing in, and therefore everybody trying to come to grips with well, what are we going to do? And I presume around that time it was so creative with artists around Melbourne. Um, yeah, I mean Melbourne was a hot a hot spot for um, for uh, emerging musicians. I mean a lot of people were still learning their their craft. But they all seem to um, uh, 
draw from one another. And, and look, uh, when you're from Melbourne, there's so many bands, you know, in the late 60s, early 70s, mid-70s that were forming and becoming quite successful, if not on the recording front, on the live front. I think in Melbourne, the main thing about Melbourne was if you could make it live, then, you know, you, you were good for um, uh, whatever follow, whether it be recording or touring, you know, concerts, whatever. Yeah. So, um it was a good breeding ground in Melbourne. Well, and as I, as I said, a lot of it started at, at the art college, when the art college, so many musicians came out of that that went into successful bands. Well, what I, what I, I think, you know, I can only give my own personal um, impressions is that uh, I remember the first Cush album and it was the, Firstly, the quality of the recording. So, you know, we we can have, you can have overproduced recording, you can have a harsh recording, but what Cush gave was this crystal clear, I call it jazz rock. So it had a jazz rock pop um, and that that's what it had. So you had this, these sensational musicians and then you out front with this fantastic voice and then this visual show that came with it. You might as well call it a cabaret show out front. I mean, it, it comes up there with the Mother Goose type um, uh, artistry. And, and, I, and, and everybody was so, um, wow, you, you're really going to get your money's worth when you go out to see Kush. You're going to get this fantastic band and you're going to get this sensational front person. And, I, and you know, was that what happened? Did you, because I obviously only came to a few shows, but were you packing the houses out all around, you know, Melbourne? We were. We were look, we were a really, really popular live band. And as I said, that, that, that was the sign of success for any um, band in Melbourne. If you could, if you could fill rooms and, um, and you know, make a, a skinless living out of performing live. Most of them were full-time musicians, maybe teaching on the side. But, yeah, we, we, we ended up, Chris ended up, you know, being a splinter band from this big band, and we ended up getting a residency at the Prospect Hill Hotel in Kew, which and we do, we, we were the most successful and popular band there every Tuesday night and every Saturday afternoon. Very and famous had, hotel. Yeah, and we packed the place out. It was just... You know, you couldn't get in there after a while. And I don't even know how many people. Probably only held, I don't know, 100, 150. If that, I'm not sure. It was just little the lounge at the front of the hotel. But that was a, that was an incredible breeding Well, I'll, I'll tell you what I remember band. about the Prospect Hill Hotel. Um, I've seen many artists there. Everybody played the Prospect Hill, including international artists. I did see Steve Marriott from the Small Faces at uh, the Prospect right. Hill Hotel. And... For our young audience, what what used to happen back in those days to have your license, your publican's license, to go that late, and we're only talking eleven thirty. At ten o'clock, you had to serve some food. You had to have food served. So, what would you get? They would give you four dim sims, or they give you a little bowl of chips. <laughs> That's what you got as part of your entry fee to see the artist. You got your food, and that was very. Very exciting too because we were all university students and nobody had much money, so that feed was quite quite sought after, especially if you could get a second serve. But um, what a famous hotel and, yeah, you know, I could only imagine, um, you know, those days. Now, again, we, what we do know and we explore this all the time and, it's it you know, it's big coming quite commonly known, I think, for the young audience that back then you could actually do four or five shows a week, no problem, um, and you could earn a living. I mean, we were talking to uh, one of our artists last week who never made it on your level back then, did later on with James Freud and uh, and Berlin uh, and the All-Stars and um, said, you know, even for a local band... Uh, because they had to take in their own PA system, Jeff, they had <laughs> they had to own a truck, they had a road crew, they had to own all that equipment. That was for your bands who were essentially uh, touring around Victoria and got out of Victoria occasionally, but had never had a hit on the radio as such, not like Kush. Um, and so, you know, it was such a, uh, you know, it was a real business, whereas, you know, you don't do that these days. So tell me... A little bit. The first Kush album was extremely successful. 
Molly Loved You on Countdown. So we then we then moved to the second album. Now, the second album isn't setting the world on fire. What what happened? Um, look, I think the same thing that happens with most bands. You have a personnel changes uh, and it uh, causes conflict and uh, that definitely um, affected the music. I was the main uh, writer along with uh, Dave Herzog, the guitarist, and whoever else. Oh, and Steve Ball, who, uh, you know, yeah. a, a few of us contributed to the songwriting. But, you know, the, the um, even though on the first, the first album, Snow White, that went gold, by the way. Absolutely. Um, yeah. I mean, that was hugely successful, mainly because of uh, MacArthur Park and Living on Easy Street, I think, and a few other things. I mean, it was, as you said, it was... Uh, uh, I, I think you could probably. I know you call it jazz rock. I think it was prog rock, you know, progressive yeah. rock. Yeah. It, um, with, with a horn section. A classic um, record but, too in Australian music history, for sure. Yeah, um, noted by the by the album cover. Oh, uh, the album cover was sensational. Absolutely. That was, that was done by another another connection from Swinburne Art College. I mean, Swinburne Art College. Um, you know, it 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 did. It was like an umbrella. Everybody in the, in the music scene, whether they be the uh, the graphic artists or album covers, or the or the journalists or the groupies. Whatever they, well, they I, I tell you, and I, I, well, I give you what I felt between the first Kush album, Snow White, and um, Get Your Bananas Out. If that's you know, I think it was called Nah, don't you know, whatever. Um, but. The difference to me was the first record was extremely polished in the creativity of the songs. The second album, I still like it. It just felt a little bit rushed as I listened to it. Yeah, well, the first album was produced at Bill Armstrong Studios. Remember those? Yes, I do. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's it's still there. It has a different name now, doesn't it? Uh, uh, Or maybe it's still there. I'm not sure. I think they've just gone. Yeah. And the second album, I think we also recorded the second album there, but we lost our way, as I said, mainly because um, personnel changes. And also we, we eliminated, you know, Kush was uh, part of the, win- the winning formula for Kush on the first album was the, the five-piece, four-piece horn section. Yeah. And the second album, we we, uh, we cut the horn section back, which, uh, you know, really wasn't what Kush should have been. So uh, we lost our way. And the songwriting... We were sort of starting to get into punk music too, Steve Ball and myself and Dave Herzog. But, but you know, having me out the front, you know, I'm not really a punk singer. So it um, it, uh, it, it all, it all it, came it, to an end, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, tell you know, me, well, the, what happened? Well, what, what, what happened? So it comes to an end, um, as a lot of artists do. And Jeff Duff has to do some soul searching. Or does Jeff Duff have to do no soul searching? He's straight back into it, and wham, you're out there playing again. Look, I, I, I've never ever stopped right up to this day, and I've always, I've always had loads of different things on the boil. Like even in Kush, I was doing solo, I was doing solo shows, even with um, with backing tapes. Again, you know, which which is. You know, it was fairly primitive. I'd go on the road when I was push. I'd go on the road with skyhooks, just just me with a with a cassette recorder, and I'd open up the show for skyhooks. I'd open up the show for Little River Band, doing just Jeff Duff solo. With um, I'd have inflatable dolls and all these little gimmicky things on stage, and I'd sing and I'd do um, I'd do. It's funny because I'd, you know, I'd be dressing in clothes that I designed, like um, leotards and things, because they were simple and easy to get in and out of. I always have costume changes. Uh, but I'd be singing, you know, beautiful, beautiful big ballads like uh, Maria and Somewhere from West Side Story. And so it was, um, um, it was a strange onslaught for the audience because they'd see this skinny guy out the front singing these. Huge ballads, you know. I was singing pretty well back then. Mm. Well, and, tell um, me, well, tell me, Jeff. Are we talking? Are we talking? When did Kush when did formally stop playing as well, a band? When did we start playing? Stop playing as a band. Um, about seventy six, maybe. I right. think. So, therefore, how long do you stay in Australia before you jet off to I, London? Look, I, 
Well, what happened then was like towards the end of push, I was doing all these other shows. Remember bananas? I was I comparing well. bananas. I was comparing there. Uh, look, I was just a, a bit of a do anything sort of ranks trade entertainer doing all sorts of things. At the same time, I was doing so much television. I was on morning shows, afternoon shows, evening shows, rock shows, whatever. I was doing everything, doing whatever. People just have me, had me on as a bit of a personality. Quite often, I wouldn't even sing. Well, um, I, I think if you if you think, Jeff Duff, um, what comes to mind is um, artist in a band, so let's say Kush, and an entertainer, say front person, can give you a great cabaret show too. I'll call it cabaret, but you can call it what you want. And also TV personality. That's how I get it. So uh, uh, Jeff Duff has the ability to cross a, go across all those uh, mediums. There's no doubt about it. Everybody knew who Jeff Duff was. Yeah, I mean, even when when I went, I mean, when I got to London, even when I went to London, I remember Wendy Stapleton. She was over. She went over there with her. And what were they called? Uh, Wendy, Wendy Stapleton and, and the Rockets. Wendy and the Rockets. She said to me when she arrived in London uh, in 1980 or something, she said, everybody knew who Duffo was. Everybody wanted to see Duffo. Everybody wanted Duffo in the band. And it's true. In, in, like before that. In, well, 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 hold on. Uh, We've gone, you've gone ahead there. I, I want to explore. Yeah. So. Therefore, about 76, 77, you've played around Melbourne, Australia for a while. When do you leave for London? Well, that's – and also, that, 70, 77, 78, I decided uh, – I was I was being fed all this punk and new age music from London from um, a guy called Laurie Dunn, who was the head of WEA in Australia. He, right. he I know Laurie Dunn very well. He then became the head of Virgin Australia, Laurie Virgin. Dunn. So he – he so he was connected with with the first Kush album, second Kush album. So when I arrived in before I arrived in London, Laurie was sending me punk clothing from uh, from, from Kings Road, like uh, um, some you know these fashionable shops. I was getting you know ripped t-shirts and ripped trousers and stuff, and I really loved it. And I loved the you know all the all the punk music. Uh, you know, Six Pistols, Etel from the time. And because Laurie uh, had all of a sudden become head of Virgin International, he said, Duffo's wasting his time in Australia coming over to England. So I I did um, a thing called the Jeff Duff Survival, Survival Show, which, um, which I had, that's when I had the guys from Little River Band, and we did a, a tour of Australia um Doing because I, I had a bit of an, enough of a name to do to, to headline shows, and, uh, um, and so, that's, that's in, so you've headed to London, you've started doing 70, some shows, right? 77, 78. I, guess. I arrived in, the, uh, in London in 78. Now, I presume what you tried to do, and, and music was changing extremely quickly in London because London is well, really to me was the hub of creativity. So, you're there trying to decipher. What you're going to do? What style you're going to build? No, 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 no. I knew exactly what I wanted okay. to do. I was, okay. I was after, I was aiming at world domination. I yeah. was so cocky, so cocky and confident, and um, mainly with the stage thing. But I started writing, you know, songs too. So I started writing uh, songs for what I consider would be my first, my debut album in London. And um, Laurie and Ray, I don't know if you remember Ray Hearn. Who was? Um, I don't know uh, Ray. Who, I knew Laurie. They all worked with John Woodruff and Co. in uh, Dirty Pool. It's a management company. Right. They had Ice House. They had me. They had. Uh, I think they had Cold Sizzle. They had a couple of other. You know, fairly fairly big bands. And 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 Flowers. That's right. Oh yeah, Flowers. flowers. Yeah. And uh, and Ray said to me, he said, before you get, uh, leave to London. Why, I'm going to team you up with Flowers, so you're going to be the singer uh, out the front of Flowers with Ivor Davis and Pat. So we, we did do it. You know, we were doing Bondi Lifesaver and all these uh, wine bars and things around Sydney to earn, for me, to earn enough money to go and support myself in London. So we did that for a while, and then uh, I'd been I'd, I'd been writing these songs, and I had by the time I arrived in London, I had enough demos to record a new album and I went round to all these 
record companies in 78, 79. And um, Beggar's Banquet loved my songs. Very famous label. Very famous label. Yeah. So I, and they released the first Duffo album, which I had the hit single, Give Me Back My Brain, on, on the single. Sorry, is that, uh, is that the Disappearing Boy album? No, 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 no. That was the three albums in. I recorded a half a dozen albums in London. So, mm. so, so, t- so tell me, was the um, uh, the one you're talking about? Because I'm looking at your albums. I'm Duffo, Duffo one with my weird eyes coming out. Right. So we got Bob the Bob the Birdman. We got uh, the yeah. Supreme Boy was the second album. Bob right. the Birdman was the third one, and Lipstickin was the fourth one. Right. Okay, so they're all your London albums. Yeah, and there was recordings and places in between, so there was a lot of comps because I had, uh, by then, after the original album, I started, um, PVK Records, which is a real musician's label, I had Peter Bean complete with that, yeah. who ended up playing on my album as well, and David Ball from Focal Home. I mean, these are all, I guess, what you call dinosaur bands, mm. but I ended up mm. work, working with them. Well, I know and, uh, who they are, uh, but you know, obviously, a lot of young, uh, yeah, young audience would know who we're talking about. But Procolarum were very influential, influential in that prog rock um, area, and you know, had several big hits. And and uh, well, it was Peter Green's with that. He was the guitarist. That he yeah. became my friend and loved him because he was on the same label as me, yeah. and so we, so obviously, he played on. My album. Uh, look, I was spoiled with music. I had the, the most incredible musicians in the world when I was in London. Yeah, and uh, you know, and I was really spoiled. But well, I, if anybody really... will, if anybody has a look at or has a, a copy or has had a read of your book, they will see a lot of the pictures from back back then and stories. And you know, um, I think one I really love is the one you're there with uh, Paul McCartney. Um, yeah. So you're obviously mingling with. I'll call it the rich and famous in the music business. Um, yeah, I mean, it was amazing because, and also because for the first time I was attracting people at my concerts in London, David Bowie would come to my shows to watch me. And, um, and you know, Paul McCartney, I remember the first time I met Paul, Paul McCartney, I'd created such a fuss in London, Paul McCartney invited me to his birthday. And I, I thought, wow, this is, you know, I, I mean, I was a Beatles fan back in Australia. So yeah. for, for me, that was a big deal. And, you know, all of a sudden, I was an A-list celebrity. You know, yes. it was only short-lived. Short um, <laughs> and that's where you'd meet a lot of your musical heroes and you'd start talking and forming bands out of those, uh, you know, the Champagne Breakfasts or whatever. I mean, your version of Walk on the Wild Side, how, you know, what kind of splash did it make back then? It was huge in Europe. I mean, we it was released in, I don't know, half a dozen or more European countries and it became... Uh, a big dance dance floor hit, um, and we we I remember when we just did the demo. It was with the Daffo band. We just did, we did some demos, and uh, I just said, oh, I really love walking the wild side. Let's just you know you all know the chords. Let's just bash it out, and um, we bashed it out, and that became the recording. Or the first recording of Walking the Wild Side was like Bob the Birdman, and that that became a big hit. In I remember in um, in France, Germany, Holland, Spain, and Italy. Oh, yeah, fantastic um, record. I love that record. And then we did, you know, I, I recorded it another half a dozen times. I, record, I even recorded it with, a, with an orchestra, yeah. an orchestral well, version. Well, tell me, we've we've got the whole London connection. Why come back to Australia, Jeff? Uh, big mistake. Big mistake. I don't know. I was there for, you know, 10 years in yeah. London and I was creating... Yeah, I mean, I was successful in a, an indie sort of way. Yeah. And I, I, was, I was with some great, I was with Cherry Red Records, David Bancroft Records, PVK Records. Yeah. I was with these great indie labels. I just thought, what am I missing out on in Australia? I hadn't really, look, I disconnected from Australia completely. I didn't want to know because, I, you know, literally I, I reached the standstill in, in, in Australia before I left. And I thought, oh, I have to get out of here. And also the lure of the whole punk, New way thing yeah. that really appealed to me, and then all of a sudden, I think things were happening back in Australia um, at about you know mid eighties, and I said, oh, "I'll go back and investigate." Oh, I, and I, I agree with you on an international level. Things started to really hot up for Australian acts. Yeah, I mean, 
yeah, the Linux deaths and then at work and uh, Midnight Oil and mm. all these things started happening internationally, you know, as well as locally, of course. And I thought, oh, I'll go back there because I am an Aussie. How, did, and, how um, were you going with your visa too? Were you thrown out because of your visa expiring or not an issue? No, no, I'm, I'm a British subject. I'm, right, my, gotcha. my, I have Scottish heritage. My yeah. father was born in Scotland. Yeah. So you so can go I back could, any time. Yeah, I plan on going back. Actually, my look, I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but my new album has been produced by the guy that um, co-produced uh, three of my albums in London. So we, we did it during COVID. I know I'm jumping ahead. No, sorry, we, but, we will get to that. So to from... Um, from coming back to Australia, uh, what I recollect is suddenly we hadn't, over here, we hadn't heard of Jeff. Essentially, to me, you'd kind of died. You know, nobody even knew where you were, what you were doing, but uh, you were doing quite a lot in London. And then suddenly you're on every TV show you could imagine. Yeah. You know, I, well, look, the Dasso album was released in Australia Um uh, with on WEA, and I think the Bob the Birdman was released locally on um, a, a local label as well. Um, but and Walk in the Wild Star was released, but I, I didn't get much attention because I wasn't here. So. Oh, I would and I, look at who if you if you were doing what you were doing, who would who would care? Who who cares yeah. what's happening in Australia? I mean, remember back then, I think we were only about fourteen million people, weren't we, or twelve million people? Um, who would care? You're in London. Australia has no ability to enhance your career if you're over there. Over there is what's happening, and that's where you, you know, kick on. So, but it was, as you said, suddenly something was kind of bubbling away over here. But that, that wasn't yep. during while you are in London. That was when you got, you got back, and it just started when you decided, well, I'll come back to Australia. And so... You're right, those kind of acts you mentioned earlier are starting to hit the world stage. So suddenly, yes, you can come back, and all I used to see was Jeff Duff on every TV show that was imaginable, and that even meant um, uh, evening shows, midday shows, morning shows. and Cooking in, shows. I, yeah. I was on everything. Morning shows, was ridiculous. And, and, and I really... And having all various types of bands with you too, whether it was a backing tape, whether it was a, a rock band, or whether it was a horn section, or, or An the, orchestra. yeah, yeah, exactly. I think that the versatility was unbelievable, and and I mean yes. the albums that you've got out kind of do show that you know for all the audience to know that uh, Jeff has about twenty eight albums, twenty seven, twenty eight. So I think my new album is my thirtieth. Yeah, well, there you go. So 29, so we're going to our 30th. So that's how many records Jeff has put out in various different, different forms of genres too. And, uh, for example, so you've, you've come back and you're doing all this work and um, something I'd, uh, I'd like to just explore a bit is that the ability for Jeff to go across from what you're doing with Kush, what you're doing with your pop side, orchestra. yeah, orchestra side, and then you come out with Alien Sex Gods. And, my God, I love that record. I mean, that is a good, strong rock album. So what what happened there? Yeah, well, look, that I I blame that album on my, my punk roots from London because, I, you know, even though I wasn't a, you know, a fully fair punk when I was in London, I loved, as I told you, that was the thing that attracted me to London. So I still had this punk yearning. So when I arrived back in Australia, um, yeah, I formed this, the Alien Sex Gods and we, we recorded uh, that mini album. Uh, you know, great songs. I loved it. I loved that album. We, and we did shows, but, you know, there wasn't much interest. That was um, uh, like... 89 or something like that. Yeah, yeah, it was. Yeah, it was. Yeah, yeah, 89. Yeah, yeah. There wasn't that much interest in that sort of music then. You know, I heard the Sex Pistols and the Stranglers and the Clash and stuff, but there wasn't much interest. I know Birthday Party said that they were a punk band, but they weren't. None of the Australian so-called punk bands were really punk bands. So um, I I said to um, uh, the musicians, um, Peter Northcote, you know, the guitarist and Peter Drummond, the drummer. Uh, and, oh, so, that, so that was Peter Northcote in Aliens. In the Aliens Sex Drive. Oh, yeah, wow, yeah. And, wow. Peter, 
And Peter Drummond, who's probably one of the best drummers in the world, I mean, he tours around the world, you know, doing uh, sessions and things. Um, yeah, so, and I mean, I love, I think I still love the period of the Alien Six Guys because it was sort of like, you know, the musicians are too good to be in a punk, to, to, be, to be called punks. Yeah. But we played sort of punk, aggressive. Well, you've heard that album, that Alien Six Guys. It's sort of punky. Rock. It's fantastic. Fantastic. Well, then we move on to Kiss My Apocalypse. And what great cover art. Tell me a little bit about it. Uh, We've got Hide and Seek, New Boy in Heaven, Sexual, Never Too Late for Praying, In Space, Everybody, Easy Street Again, um, uh, Redone. So this is, uh, so Kiss My Apocalypse, um, it's Jeff Duff and the Prophets. What, what was yeah, that it? was getting back to the 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 Kushras again with the horn section and you know like the best musicians in Australia on that on the Puppets album. We had incredible people. We even we even had a guitarist from Chicago guesting on that album. Oh wow, fantastic! Because um, he came he came and toured with with, with uh, the Puppets wow. in Australia. Now you know then we um we've got. The best of album, I love that too, Martian Girls Are Easy, um, and that mm-hmm. gives a really in-depth, for everybody listening, it is one of the better uh, ones In if you want to get a cross-section of Jeff's music. Compilation. Yeah, yeah, it gives you all of that. Uh, we then go to live and acoustic. We've got ground control to Frank Sinatra. You're driving me wild here, uh, Jeff. It just keeps going. Fragile Spaceman, and again, cover art is great. Now, we get to... Walking on eggshells, which is now going back a bit. It's like two two fourteen, and you know, with the pandemic, yeah. we've all lost two or three years of our life. I, quite frankly, am still just pre-pandemic. It was a blur to me. It went in a blink, and we'd lost three years of our lives. Um, whether we agree with it or not is another thing. And yeah. so you got this beforehand, and what a what a sensational record it is. Uh, and to me. It is a rock album edging with a bit of pop, um, but essentially kind of rock. Uh, how did it come along and how long did it take to to develop and record? Well, you know, like I've never stopped writing and recording. So, you know, I was demoing songs all the time and thankfully uh, teaming up with, you know, great musicians. Um, with um, Booking on Eggshells, um, Steve, Bull, the best player from Ice House. I mean, I've had this connection with Ice House, Ivor Davies, etc. Nearly all of my career, there's always been some sort of connection. Anyway, people uh, called me one day. I'd never worked with him before. Oh, maybe I'd done some some of those tribute shows with him because he, he does a lot of those. Um, and he said, uh, Duffo, would you like to um, uh, uh, listen to some music I've written? Uh, he said, they're just pieces of music. They don't have any melodies or or choruses or verses or arrangements as such. They're just slices of music. And I said, send them to me. Oh. So he sent, them, he sent me one, and I ended up writing a lyric and a melody to it, then another one, then another one, and all of a sudden we had an album. So all those songs I'm walking in eggshells are um, people and Jeff Duff compositions written out of, I guess, little slices of music that he'd, he'd recorded and he didn't know what to do with. Well, I, um, I, I think people should do the, themselves a favour. It is a sensational record. I love it um, and have it on one of my playlists, which I kind of play every day. And uh, Walking on Eggshells too, it's just, it's just sensational. So tell me, although I think there's some explicit uh, lyrics in there. We're not, I don't know about that. Are they? Well, there are. Really? Except, I can't yes. remember. Right? Well, uh, Spotify have said so. They've put an E for explicit on it. I never knew you were that way inclined to give explicit. No, lyrics. no, I don't, I don't think so. I don't think so. Well, really? we might have to investigate that. <laughs> um, and also, Paul Wheeler's drummer for my house is on that album, I'm Walking on Eggshells, too. Oh, okay. Um, well, so, look, you know, we've got that now. Let's go. We've There's... I can tell the audience there's just so many albums we can't go through them all. So let's talk about the new record and what's going on. I want to explore that and what style and genres you put in that because if they go away and listen to Walking on Eggshells now, are they going to hear the same kind of thing on the next record or have you done a bit of a U-turn? Well, I think we're going to 
No, because look, the album before Walking on Eggshells was um, Fragile Space, and I, I was I've been very very influenced by David Bowie all of my career, like right from art school. From uh, look, I'm going back a bit, but I have to tell you this because it's been an important part, you know. And I dedicated my autobiography to David Bowie because he just passed away when that came out in 2016. So he's been a major influence, not just not musically, but but stylishly as a as a style master and like as a um, you know a fashionista. Um, so no doubt he's uh, he did rub off on me. So um, fragile space and. Uh, before Walking in Eggshells was was, a, was an album that I'd written basically about uh, my feelings about David Bowie. And then when we got to um, uh, Walking on Eggshells, it was a progression of, of that uh, of that vibe from uh, from the Fragile Space album. Yeah, yep. And, and, um, so are we heading in the same direction with the new record? Um, it's easy for me to get sidetracked in the conversation. No, that's okay. I, I, so are we are we heading in the, the same direction with the new record? Um, you know, is it essentially uh, a rock record, a rock with pop, or is it a, uh, you know, does it have some No, look, look, because I've been, I've done a lot of work with orchestral work and I had a depth up because a lot of the, the new album is, uh, and I wrote it during the uh, the lockdown period in, in Australia, you know, 219, 220, 221, with um, a producer in London, as I mentioned before. Uh, Sid Lukowicz has uh, produced it and co-written it with me. We wrote it all online. Uh, oh, I guess it would have been 220, really. That was the lockdown period. Yeah. And um, it, it's big production. I guess it's a little bit prog rocky. For me, I keep going back to my roots with a lot of the music. So it's, it's a bit prog rocky. But it's also big singing, big, big. Look, it's probably considered pretty daggy by younger people, but great songs, big melodies, big choruses, big hooks, and big production. Well, when can um, people expect to hear something from the new record? Well, it's just been, it's, it was just mastered uh, in the last couple of weeks. We're just uh, doing the artwork now. And as you know, with all uh, the photographs and images of people, uh, I have so much. You know, such great visual things. We have to, you know, decide on a, an album cover. I just spoke to Mad CD yesterday, and um, they, I think you were one of them. They talked me out of doing I was going to do a short run of vinyl album, and um, you and uh, a number of musicians said, look, it's a waste of time if you're just looking at merchandise for gigs, just do CDs. It's a bit of memorabilia for the audience to take away so I'm just going oh, to do CD. And I think so. Look, we we um at Laneway, uh we understand artists n- need some product to sell at their shows when they're doing the amount of shows that you're doing uh, and we totally and totally understand on the lower volumes. We um we disagree with high volume sales of CDs and vinyl and I'll tell you why is because CD um uh, will never uh, will never decompose, has a lifespan of a 1,000 years, so essentially will <laughs> never and goes into landfill. And one of the most blasphemous um, um, things that we, we used to do here in Australia is we used to send over container loads of rubbish to Indonesia. We'd send our rubbish right. over there. That's disgusting. And what used to happen was they would be container loads full of CDs which they would throw into landfill it's uh, it's a blot on society and on the world, and we're totally against them on a large volume. Um, so I think you're probably doing the right thing. Uh, vinyl, not as much because it's made from oil, but it still takes a long time to decompose. And, to break down, yeah, yeah. Definitely. And so we and we have to think about those things. Uh, you know, yeah. we are fairly anti-establishment here at Laneway. We try to go against the grain and. Push and you know, and push up against the standards of today that uh, go back to the old world, and so that's that's our opinion on that. That's why we are different. Yeah, you have a green mentality, and I think yeah. you know you have to nowadays. And I, I think so you know, I'd like to ask you also. You know, we get a lot of this is that people continually tell me, "Well, we, you know, if we're putting on a live show, 
Uh, and we don't do a lot of live shows, Jeff, because it, it's not what we do and it's not our forte. But if we're doing a, a pretty big live show and I have artists that all complain about digital, I'll hear them all complaining. And I say to them, well, you know, this show is being put on through digital sales. That's who's paying for this show. Um, and uh, the digital landscape um, does work for a lot of people uh, and it and it can bring in very good income. Um, streaming. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I, th- I think one of the stories I always remember was Taylor Swift and Peter Frampton, um, but say Peter Frampton saying that, you know, he'd had 20 million streams and, uh, you know, he'd, he'd made a couple of thousand dollars or whatever he'd made. But what people need to remember, at which he doesn't tell everybody, and I have had dealings with Peter Frampton and he's a lovely guy, so this is not saying you know, anything derogatory. But what they forget to say, and we see with a lot of bands here in Australia from the 70s, is their contracts in the 70s were on 3.5% of wholesale price, and the wholesale price is manipulated by the majors anyway. Okay, 3.5%. How an artist could survive on 3.5% is beyond me. Now we go to digital sales and have had, say, 20 million digital sales and they've made $20,000. that's because they're still on that original deal of 3.5%. And if they were lucky, they're on 12%. And then you got to the 80s and your maximum we would ever give out would be 18%, but it'd be around 12 to 18. Now, these are shocking figures and that's what existed. And uh, the situation has totally turned now. Now, for the older artist, it's a lot difficult, a lot more difficult, Jeff, because they have to come to grips with this new social media digital world. But for the young artist, the the prospects and the horizons are, have never been better and they know yep. how to run this system and they could put out a song and not even be big and still have 150,000 streams and make yeah. quite good money from that. I mean, if we look at bands like here in Melbourne, King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard, who are doing yeah. their own things, and Kingswood, these are bands that have shunned the major labels. And but doing... they're mainstream now, that, that King, aren't they? What, we'll say that again. Wouldn't they be considered a mainstream band nowadays, wouldn't they? Yeah, King not, Gizzard yeah, and not, the Lizard Gizzard? Yeah, not with a major label, though, on their own. They run everything no, themselves. But I'm, yeah, but they are... But because yeah. of their yeah, absolutely yeah. they are. These these guys are, are running their lives. You know, it, they're all making a great income out of this. And yeah. I find that really exciting. I, I think the whole landscape, I mean, uh, I'll go back to your whole career and how privileged you've been being in the entertainment business. And I remember a person uh, saying to me, and I won't mention who it was, but said, if you leave the uh, the entertainment business, Vince, you'll regret it because you'll never get back in. So I never left. No, that's true. Look, that's, that's one of the reasons why I've never, ever stopped. You know, people say, well, are you still making records, still doing concerts? I mean, at, at the moment, I know you say I do a lot of gigs. At the moment, I've got so many shows on, big headlining concerts around Australia with, um, you know, I, I keep getting asked to do things. And I, and I, I would never say no if I... If it involves singing and entertaining, so I, I just keep doing them. I'm I'm doing. Look, I do a lot of David Bowie shows. Uh, you know, just I know those independent young fans. They can make money from streaming. I can't do that so much. So I go. I perform live, and I do because of my affiliation with David Bowie. Because you know, like I knew him quite well in London, and he lived next door to me here in Sydney. I do David Bowie shows. People sort of associate me with Bowie, so I do all forms of David Bowie shows, which I. I really love doing. I love the material and stuff, but I can't. I can't really make any money from my recordings, as you know. You know, oh, like I know, those, I know. Yeah. those younger bands, they, they, you know, they get lots of streams. I don't because, you know, who cares about Jeff stuff? Oh, well, well, you know, no, well, but you still, you, you still have a, uh, a very privileged position. Here's an artist at your age and your part of your career where you are still doing shows like at the Sydney Opera House. Um, yeah, I've got, yeah, I've got five shows coming up in June. There you go. And I think for the audience to know, um, Jeff Duff is, is very privileged. And, and we've got to say that because, um, remember, it's the, the punters who come and see you and support you uh, who generate the ability for you to continue to do this. I find it very insulting when artists 
you know, make out it's all about them and who really cares about the punters. And we, and we see this with a lot of these big glam American bands, you know, they go off the rockers and, you know, they, you know, go, you know they've gone off uh, the band and, um, with the heritage bands or the new yeah, well, I know more the heritage bands, you know, the, the yeah. Motley Crews and all these kind of where, guns and roses. Yeah, where the audience is really superfluous, and you know they try and make out now that that's all about the audience, but they just go so far off the rocks. Well, it's all about the audience, and that's why, as musicians, and I'm a musician myself, that we're here, um, and we yeah. must respect them because they respect your music by. By listening to it and coming to see you play, so I I think that you know um, you're in a very very good uh, a position where you're doing so many gigs and there's just so many artists of your ilk that just can't do that and you've got your your tribute shows which do that but it gives you the ability to go out and write and put out your own material and yes the your own solo material hasn't taken off like what you're doing with the Bowies or the Chicago shows and all that, but one interwines with itself and gives you the ability to be in the entertainment business. And as we say, don't ever leave. It's It's been a privilege being in the entertainment business. I get up every day, and I want you to tell the audience if you're the same, I get up every day, Jeff, and I'm excited. I'm excited about what I do. I love when someone like Jeff Duff sends me his new record, which uh, nobody or new song, which nobody has heard. And I go, man, am I privileged to be the first one listening to this? I mean, how do you feel? Do you get up every day and just go, oh, wow, what a life? Oh, yeah, I do. Look, I, um, I, am, I feel privileged because, you know, I live in a beautiful, beautiful part of Sydney. I mean, my my balcony overlooks the harbour and stuff, and and I'm I'm doing exactly what I want to do. I I'm writing and performing and playing my own music, and I'm doing look in order. I you must be aware now. In order to survive, as even as an original musician, you you can't really make money doing original music. So we all everybody's doing tribute shows. You know all the. The best-known musicians in Australia are all doing tributes. They might call it something else, but at the end of the day, it's still a tribute. They're playing someone else's music, whether it's covers or impersonations or tributes, you know. So that's the way we make money, and it's unfortunate. You know, I hate that. Sometimes, yes, I wake up and I'm excited, but sometimes I wake up and I think, fuck, I have to be David Bowie tonight for, uh, you know, at the Opera House. And I, um, I think... Sometimes I feel disgusted that I've got into that situation. You didn't, I really you do. didn't I... use the fuck word there, did you? Oh, sorry, did you say no. that? I don't think I've ever heard you use a word like that, and I've known you no, many no, years. Well, <laughs> oh, Jeffrey. Well, <laughs> I, get, I get so passionate about the whole thing because, look, I re- you know, it's only in the last 10 years, really, that, I, uh, that the whole world has turned into a tribute. You know, and yeah. I, I get invited to do these tributes. I think, gee, I, I don't really, really want to sing any more David Bowie shows in different formats. I do enough, you know. Yeah. But then again, I think that David Bowie pays my rent or whoever, you know. I mean, oh, it's, David- it's, it's not just that, Jeff. You're, you're supporting, and it is you, you're supporting a band. That band wouldn't be doing that if you weren't out there doing it out front. And so you're no. creating work and jobs for these people. And it's, it, you know, it really does come back to you and – I think that's another. I'll take my hat off to you that that, that those bands of yours, because you have various um, bands, uh, you you know you're providing a living for them too. Yeah, that's true. That's true. I mean, and look, most of the look, all the bands that that, that end up doing uh, tributes, they always you know head towards the music that they grew up with as as, as uh, teenagers. You know, they want they want to be in a Led Zeppelin, Led Zeppelin band, a Rolling Stones band, a Beatles band. So they end up playing the music that they grew up with, which is which is really good. And you're right; it does the tribute world does employ a lot of musicians that wouldn't be working if it wasn't for the well, you know, the tribute I do, band. Uh, just before we sign off, I want to ask you something. There, you said something about you know new musicians and older musicians and playing. Well, I and it is a mentality thing. It's difficult for me to come to grips with new music if it's not in the style that I grew up with, um, and to remember those songs. So let's, you know, think about some big hits now and you probably go, I can't even remember them, Vince. And then you go back to songs that were, you know, big hits, I don't know, 
the China Grove by Doobie Brothers or Toulouse Street or, you know, whatever the albums were or Pink Floyd. And you can remember them to the day. They're very um, they're embedded into your brain. And so there's – I don't know if you see it the same way and is it just because we're older, Jeff, and we can't come to grips with that newer style of creativity? Yeah. Look, I think – Look, Vincent, when you and I grew up, particularly in Melbourne, we we were um, there was an onslaught on radio, television, whatever, of all those great, you know, what people call dinosaur bands. We had Deep Purple, Black Sabbath, we had the, the Rolling Stones, Led Zeppelin, you know, the Beatles, you know, David Bowie. We had all those incredible bands, and they were all memorable, memorable bands with incredible songs. You know the repertoire of original original songs was amazing, and um, it seems like we're always half harking back to those days because nothing has gotten any better. Yeah. That was the, that was the the peak of uh, modern pop rock music, and nothing has progressed. You know, I mean, you get you do get offshoots. You know, like with um, people like Sting and stuff. But really, he's really just progressing from what he was doing with Police. And Paul McCartney, the same with the Beatles and whoever from, from you know, what, I hate that term, dinosaur bands, but I suppose, you know, it's, it's as, as fitting as any other term we want to use. Well, if, but we do, yeah, if, we, we all, we're continually harking back to those bands and that music and those periods because they were the best. Yeah. If I was to say to you, widen the word, widen the word rock and rock never dies. And it kind of is true if you go back to from, say, 69 onwards and think rock, and I want you to um, widen that word, what, you know, what rock covers, it never dies. It has never died. But if we go through all the genre changes, a lot of them have died off. And they do come around again. They do 360s and they do come back. But rock... It just goes across rock and rock goes across blues and rock goes across country and rock goes across, you know, even disco. Um, rock never dies. I don't know. Do you kind of agree with that? Yeah, I do. And I think the way, uh, the only way rock music, if that's the broad term, can progress is by fusing it, So, uh, which has happened in world music. Um, you know, people fusing different genres of music and, but it's still under under the rock idiom, you know, so um, you get all sorts, you know, that's where pop rock has come from, you know, all these mm. incredible music, musicians, but they're, they're branching outside of the normal, yeah. you know, four-piece rock. Yeah, band. I think you could you could add to the word rock rhythm and blues, or you could say, yeah, yeah. a lot, lot would say rhythm and blues, but for a younger audience, I think they get confused. So you say rock, but it's really kind of rock, rhythm and blues. Because yeah. that's where you're free, Bad Company, Jeff Beck, uh, all these artists, Steve Marriott, um, everybody came from, correct? Yeah, look, I mean, I know you've mentioned Steve Marriott before. Look, I, I thought Steve Marriott was a genius. I thought, mm. you know, like a great singer. That was basically blues, you know, British blues music, but they ended up writing great rock songs, you know, Tin Soldier and Itchy Park and all those things. Fantastic songs, but that Steve Marriott was a blues singer. I don't know if you remember if you go back that far. No, I don't. But he, you know, they were they were blues musicians, but they ended up writing, you know, great rock songs. Pop oh, songs. you know, you you had uh, from the Small Faces to Steve Marriott to Straight to Humble Pie, which yeah, Peter, yeah, Peter Frampton. Um, yeah, you know, and then and then back to humble pie. Uh, you know, then he moved on, and anyway, it just uh, Steve Marriott to me was a sensational artist, and he's the um, god. He's the best, yeah, and the most incredible blues singer, really. Where if you listen to him singing, amazing, mm, mm, absolutely. So, well, Jeff, it uh, you know we've been going just on an hour now, so oh, really? I, I don't oh. know if we're boring uh, the listeners or whether. <laughs> You know, uh, we just we could keep talking all day, you and me. I think really, um, but it's been fantastic to talk to you, and we'd like to talk to you again. These podcasts are, are new for Laneway, and we felt that we needed to do these to get an in-depth look at the artists that we support. 
We uh, can't wait to see you again. For everybody listening to, Jeff did have a crack at me this week and said, I, I thought I would have seen you at my shows last week. I said, there's only so many shows I can go to of artists in general. And I think it was yeah. one of those nights where I was just, I couldn't even listen to music because I'd had enough. Um, but I will be at your next shows in Melbourne or whether I'm in Sydney and it will be Absolutely fantastic to catch up. I'd like everybody to uh, say thanks to Jeff, and we'll talk to you soon, Jeffrey. And there it is, another Laneway Talks. If you enjoyed that, there's more. Just search Laneway Talks for more great conversations. G'day, folks. Mark Allen here and... The Ox, David Schwartz. Uh, and we've started a brand new podcast called... A Couple of Blokes, A Couple of Beers, and we're just chewing the fat. Couple of Blokes, Couple of Beers with Ox and Marco. I'm thinking about whitening my teeth just so when I smile... There's a new episode every Wednesday. Have you got a weight issue? Of course I do. <laughs> it's a stupid loaded question. A Couple of Blokes, Couple of Beers with David Schwartz and Mark Allen. I'm eating the kids' Maltese. You're eating their of... Christmas present. I am a piece of garbage. <laughs> Listen wherever you get your podcasts.